This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The term globalization has been around for quite a while, but it's really seemingly maybe the last 30 to 40 years or so that we've seen it become a more common term in everyone's language. Still, it has quite a historical view going back many centuries. And sometimes to understand the power of something in today's conversation, we do need to look back at how, in this case, globalization has been a part of our culture seemingly forever. Jeffrey Garten writes about exactly that in his book From Silk to Silicon, the story of globalization through 10 extraordinary lives. Mr. Garten is a former dean of the Yale University School of Management, where he still teaches. He has also worked for Presidents Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Clinton, as well as a managing director at Lehman Brothers and the Blackstone Group. And we welcome Jeffrey Garten to the show. Mr. Garten, great to have you, sir. Thank you very much. Fantastic to have your book, uh, have you here to talk about your book. It's it's interesting because you write this. I mean, you are a, a someone that has very much a historical viewpoint on a lot of things in life. Correct. 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 What is well, it? I, I mean, I I think that you know it's it's very useful to have a historical context for talking about today or for talking about the future. And uh, I, I just think it gives it a little bit more texture and it grounds you a little bit. But I am correct that it seems like it's been, you know, maybe the last 30 years or so, and maybe even a little bit of a shorter term than that, that this term globalization has has really taken on a life of its own. And, and it's really, uh, you know, a more common word in our vocabularies. Yes, it is. I think, um, you know, when I look back... Um, Somewhere in the early 70s, maybe with the oil, uh, with the OPEC oil embargo, um, an awful lot of people became conscious that we're living in a smaller and smaller world, which is more interconnected. And uh, after that embargo, there were more and more events which really drove that home. What is it today, though, that, that companies... Uh, see as the necessary point where they're looking to expand their operations, they're looking to have greater reach across the globe. What is it that that is kind of spurred on a lot of these companies to take this viewpoint? Well, um, you know, if you look at the last, let's say, 30 years, um, all kinds of barriers to uh, the interaction of sovereign countries have really dissolved. Uh, trade barriers have declined. You know, actually, if you look around the world, tariff rates are very, very low. Mm -hmm. Other kinds of trade obstacles, regulations, quotas, they're down more than they, you know, had been in, in, in many, many years. Um, and um, it wasn't so long ago that most countries did not allow their currencies to circulate globally, but that's a thing of the past, too. So in a way, we're dealing with a global market with fewer and fewer barriers. And if you're an American company asking, where's the market? 
um, you have to conclude that maybe 80 or 90 percent is outside the country. Mm-hmm. And so I think that naturally leads to strategies which really force countries to I'm sorry, companies to expand, uh, you know, to all the corners of the world. What's interesting is that this book, you profile 10 individuals who you see as having a great impact in terms of globalization in, in their own ways. And it's interesting that, speaking of historically, you go back all the way to Genghis Khan in terms of how he really looked, in terms of building an empire, looked at it, looked at it in a global perspective. Yes, well... Um, you know, here's what I tried to do, um, you know, starting where where we just did and thinking about the global setting in which we live and thinking about our world and how much smaller it's it, it, it's getting. I wanted to I wanted to give it a context, uh, a really um, fresh context. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at globalization from pretty much when it started, or at least that that was the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And I concluded that, you know, it was about 60,000 years ago when some families in Africa basically stood up and walked out. And they were looking for more food, and they were looking for a more secure situation. And basically, I concluded that the history of the human race is pretty much synonymous with the history of globalization. I had to start somewhere, and I couldn't go all all the way back. So no. I decided to start with Genghis Khan, um, who lived in the uh, in the 13th century. And while we all know of Genghis Khan as you know for his brutality, mm-hmm. um, what I wanted to show is that this guy basically brought under one political roof all the world from the Pacific Ocean to what we used to call Eastern Europe. Um, and after, after the brutal conquering, he set up uh, communication systems and transportation systems, and he figured a way to administer all these different cultures. And in many ways, this was kind of the first age of globalization that we can relate to. In other words, I think this is when it started in some kind of sophisticated way. Mm-hmm. I mean, in his time, believe it or not, uh, in the time of his sons, you could travel from what is now Korea all the way to uh, Hungary. Um, there were roads, the Silk Roads, there were passports. There were places to stay. There were places to change your horses. Um, I mean, this was a long time ago, and of course, it, it wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. Right. But it was pretty far advanced. Then, in terms of, of uh, starting with Genghis Khan and, and going through the other people that you put in this book, I mean, you include uh, John D. Rockefeller in here, uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Ding Xiaoping. Uh, amongst others, what is kind of the, the common ground amongst all of them? What, what makes them seemingly the perfect people to bring into this book? Okay, well, what I wanted to do was I wanted to focus on people uh, with a few criteria. One is 
I wanted to identify people over the last almost thousand years who did something so spectacular by way of making the world smaller and more interconnected that that they changed their world, they changed the world they live in, mm -hmm. and it was such a powerful change that we're still living with that change today. So that was that was one criteria, sort of the magnitude of what they did. Mm -hmm. The second is that they couldn't be just thinkers. They had to actually roll up their sleeves and execute their ideas, which, which narrowed the field considerably because over the ages, there have been a lot of really smart people yep. who had some ideas that were very futuristic, but I only picked those that actually made those ideas into reality. And the third criteria was that what they did had to be early enough that I could legitimately say they inaugurated a new age. So there was a new age among my characters, a new age of empire, mm -hmm. a new age of exploration, a new age of colonization, a new age of global finance a new age of industrialization, uh, a new age of free markets. So, so you know, I had basically 10 ages um, signifying that what these people did began a trend that had an enormous amount of momentum, both broad and deep. Uh, I, I've got a few uh, of the people in here that I want to ask you, and we have about you know about twelve minutes or so. But before we do that, of this group, who who is the one or two that are probably the most most entertaining, most enthralling for you to to write about in this book? Um, well, one of them would have been the second person who is named Prince Henry the Navigator. Yeah, he was a prince, a Portuguese prince. Um, in the uh, 15th century. And he basically put together the ships and the crews, and he brought together all the latest uh, nautical technology in the world at the time. And he forced these uh, Portuguese explorers to go down the coast of Africa and discover India and China, and those very same ships also discovered the new world. Mm -hmm. And what fascinated me about this is it really was the dark ages. And for somebody to have the wherewithal to think about seaborne exploration in a way that it had never taken place, I was just amazed. Uh, you know, I, I was amazed at the that capability. And, and a second guy who I, I think may be the most entertaining chapter is, is someone named Cyrus Field. Yeah. Cyrus Field was an American businessman who had no knowledge of technology whatsoever. And yet he built the transatlantic telegraph. And to show you how dramatic it was, um, imagine this. One day, one day in the 1860s, uh, news traveled from Europe to the U.S. no faster than it had 3,000 years before because it was basically dependent on the winds. 
And in one minute, when that telegraph was connected, we had real-time communications across the oceans. And within a couple of years, the entire world was wired. And this is a very interesting story because it's a story of failure after failure after failure, and then finally a success. Yeah. But it's also, it makes us think about the Internet today. I mean, we're, you know, yeah. rightfully um, uh, astounded at what the Internet is being able to do. But in fact, the Internet was a far less dramatic advance <laughs> because it came on top of the radio and the, and, and, and the telephone and the TV um, and you know, we could already watch wars in other country real time. Yep. But when the transatlantic telegraph was connected, that was a discontinuity of, of proportions that I don't think we can get our heads around. We're talking. Uh, we're talking with uh, Jeffrey Garten, who is the author of the book "From Silk to Silicon: The Story of Globalization Through Ten Extraordinary Lives." Uh, quickly uh, about Robert Clive, because it, a lot of people may have heard of his name and. Just his impact on on the British Empire is staggering. Yeah. With the with, you know with the connection to India. Yes, well, you know I um, Robert Clive, Clive is my uh, um, third person after Prince Henry. Um, at the age of seventeen, he went to India as a clerk. Within fifteen years, he was the head of what was called the East India Company. Yep which was a big company, a British company in India, and it had its own army. And as the head of the company and head of the army, he conquered India for the British Empire. And it was a major, major thing because the British Empire was a force of massive globalization. You, know, you may remember the expression, the sun never set on the British yep, Empire. That's right. It was so big, but this was the first really big step that this guy with no connections in England, with no money, um, basically rose in, in Calcutta, oversaw this company. And this is the story I tell is how he conquered one part of India after another, yeah. explain how he did it. And this, this put British on the road to the greatest global power uh, <laughs> until the U.S. came along. Yeah, and, and it was as you said, it was there for quite quite some time as the uh, foremost power, uh, you know, in the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, they 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 basically introduced markets around the world, yep. the rule of law, the kind of government, uh, uh, you know, that we 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 consider to be uh, representative. Till really went about. Yeah. Till really went about, but basically between World War One and World War Two, the the shift started to happen. Correct. Yes. After World, well, after World War One, Britain was, that was uh, kind of, uh, you know, they, they, they had exhausted their resources. And yeah. by World War Two, we really, we really had to take over from them. Uh, John Rockefeller is interesting. And, and for people here in the U.S., a lot of people will know the name. Uh, but the fact that, as you bring up, realistically, he was, I guess the best term is a, is a game changer on two fronts. The, the energy industry, which there's no doubt about, but also his philanthropic ventures that, that he is so well known for as well. Well, that, I, that to me, that was the really big surprise that he retired fairly young, extraordinarily wealthy, 
having created the global oil industry. And then he proceeded to build Rockefeller Foundation, Rockefeller University. From the beginning, they were global. So this was really the beginning of global philanthropy. And they were run like businesses. They were not run like charities. Um, And both of those institutions created in the early 20th century are, are, are alive today and extremely vibrant and very much at the forefront of this whole industry of global philanthropy, which I say is very, very key to, to globalization, not only today, but in the future. We're talking with uh, Jeffrey Garden, whose book uh, From Silk to Silicon is out in bookstores now. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, you, you write, is, is one of these people as well in this book. And I don't think there's much doubt that in, in terms of of modern the the modern British I don't I don't want to say empire but in terms of their uh, their authority Margaret Thatcher really she had such an impact on not only her territory but uh, all across Europe and really her her fingerprints were across the globe as well I I think so I I I think this may be the more the most controversial selection because. Uh, the selection that I made because Thatcher is such a controversial character. But what I say is that um, since the end of the Second World War, actually since the Russian Revolution, um, most of the world was moving in a a socialist direction. Uh, And that was accelerated by the Depression. That is, governments became much, much bigger in economies. And it was Margaret Thatcher in nineteen in in, in the you know, late seventies and the eighties who basically reversed that tide and put the world much more on a free market basis. She did it in England with such a powerful example that that example spread to other parts of Europe. And while I can't I can't prove a direct causal relation, at the same time China began to open up in the world. That is, China mm-hmm. began to really deregulate. And uh, what makes Thatcher so significant is that those forces that she unleashed and that she encouraged are at the heart today of all of our controversial issues. Because in opening up markets, she, she created a lot of prosperity, but she also created a very wide inequality. And you could look at our election today and you could see the passion in, in different aspects of globalization. Yeah. You know, what has trade done to us? All of that, all of that stems really from the decisions that Margaret Thatcher made. So I'm saying, you know, globalization is not necessarily an unalloyed good thing. It's just the most powerful force acting on us and we've got to deal with it. Time for uh, one more, and, and I find uh, Andrew Grove very interesting because, as you alluded to uh, earlier, you know we're in a, in an age of digital. Uh, everything we do is connected to digital, and not a lot of people will know the name Andrew Grove. You know that you know maybe out on the street, if you ask him what he's famous for, they wouldn't know. But it, he is really at the base of this entire internet revolution that we've seen over the last twenty, thirty years. Yes, that's that's my contention. That more than Bill Gates 
and more than uh, Steve Jobs. Although I, I ended my book at the end of the 20th century, which kind of eliminated the major stuff that Steve Jobs did. But Andrew Grove figured out how to manufacture the microprocessor in mass global amounts. And that that microprocessor is in everything yep. that is part of the industrial revolution that we're now going through. Whether you're talking about your cell phone, whether you're talking about an autonomous car, whether you're talking about a 3D printer, the microprocessor is part of it. And it was Grove who figured out a manufacturing method that basically allowed these microprocessors to be manufactured everywhere. So I think uh, in, addition, in addition to having maybe one of the most dramatic biographies of anyone, having escaped the Nazis yeah. and then escaped the, you know, the Soviets, yep. um, this is and, – and, and, you know, anyone who finds intro, uh, uh, immigration controversial – you ought to look like, uh, look at a guy like Andrew Gove, who came at the age of 20 not speaking English and basically changed our country. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.